0: Are you struggling to free up time for client advisory work? Is scope creep hurting your fixed pricing model? Are your quality control processes lacking? Is your staff stuck in a never ending monthly close process? Ever wish you had a genie that could help you out? Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, SmartBooks Genie, later in the
1: episode. We collaborate remotely. We use Slack. Well, we use Basecamp.
0: I, I, this is where I was heading with, with with Slack, right? I've questioned it. You've questioned it. I've started talking to other people that are questioning it. It's almost like Slack's a little out of control, and the benefits you had from Slack before are starting to go away because it's starting to just feel like another big old inbox. And then if you're in multiple Slacks and you can't find things, like oh yeah, it's be- is Slack like ripe for disruption from a different app. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Analytics Solutions. If you're looking for better ways to run and scale your cloud accounting practice, check out Analytics Solutions. The team at Analytics provides accounting, bookkeeping, and tax preparation services They can help solve your firm's challenges like back office scalability and long-term growth. They can even help streamline your daily operations. How? By using a cloud accounting solution called Insight360 that combines experienced professionals, app integrations, and a management portal. Insight 360 takes care of your back office task and delivers timely and precise reporting of both financial and operational parts of your client's business. Analytics offers multiple partnership models such as referral, semi-private, and private label and uses project-based pricing so you won't get trapped into any long-term contracts or commitment. Head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash analytics. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash A-N-A-L-Y-T-I-X. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by BQE Core. If you're focused on niche clients that are architects, engineers, consultants, or lawyers, BQE is the app for them. And BQE Succeed is the conference for you to best connect with companies in those niches. BQE Succeed is happening from May 31st to June 3rd, 2020 at the Encore at Wynn Las Vegas. And listeners can get $200 off registration by using code CAP2020. The Cloud Accounting Podcast will be there, will you? Head over to cloudaccountingpodcastpromo forward slash BQE Succeed. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo.com forward slash
1: B-Q-E-S-U-C-C-E-E-D. Welcome to the Cloud Accounting Podcast. I'm Blake Oliver.
0: And I'm David Leary. Blake, hugs and kisses for you. This is our 160th
1: episode and it's on Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day, David. I couldn't think of anyone else I'd rather spend the morning with than you. And I, I have a relevance. The chocolates you sent were wonderful. Oh, yeah. By the, way. the digital chocolates that I didn't send. I spotted an article that is appropriate for Valentine's Day on the AICPA blog. Can I share this with you? Do you absolutely love it? I... All right,
0: I'll stop. There's no more jokes. In other words, it's done.
1: <laughs> I'll, I'll stop now. Sorry. So these are seven reasons to date a finance professional over at blog.aiCPA.org by Mabala Menduga. I'll go through the list for you. Number one, they pay attention to detail. Two, you'll never have to calculate the tip. Although we do annoyingly take out our calculators to calculate the tip because we don't like doing mental math. People always get confused by that. Three, consistency. Four, they know work-life balance. That I'm not really sure about. That
0: is hilarious. That is th- that, that's, that's genius. <laughs> well,
1: and he, well, here's, the, uh, here's what that means. Quote, you won't have to worry about Finance Bay getting too clingy, especially during tax season. Whether they're offering sound business advice, filing people's taxes, or running audits, finance professionals dedicate their work days to the client's goals and happiness. For their partner, that means ample amounts of me time and space. But don't worry, (laughs) finance professionals know all about balance. They can multitask like no other, so you won't have to worry about feeling neglected either. This is Uh, great. If you really don't like going out to Valentine's dinner, then date a finance professional. Five, they're great under pressure. Six, guess who's handling the taxes? I think that's my wife's favorite part, is that she doesn't have to deal with any of the money stuff. She she hates that. Uh, And then seven, you can trust them.
0: Wow. I can stick with a Valentine's Day theme if you'd like. <laughs> All right. Uh, so so you know what's a nice thing to get your Valentine? Amazon gift cards.
1: Oh yeah. Money always beats anything else because I feel like when somebody gives me a gift that I have to go use and I can't it's not money, then it's like a chore. So tell yeah. Yeah. So tell me about the Amazon gift cards.
0: An associate of the My Peril HR CEO, Michael Mann, pled guilty on Wednesday to a charge of conspiracy to commit wire fraud.
1: Was this somebody who worked for him?
0: He was, uh, for one of his entities, you know, You know, he has the, the huge structure. So, this is one of the entities that was, quote, unquote, advising Optimum, which is a United Healthcare Group company. Mm-hmm. Basically, what they were doing is they were taking a real consulting contract. Somehow, they got with Optimum for like $3.6 million and then tweaking it and using it over and over again. So, he, instead of just the real company with the contract, he'd have seven fake companies and they would all have the same invoice. And then he would use that to go get
1: loans. Oh, I see. So he was like factoring fake receivables.
0: Exactly. And so apparently when a bank would contact him, he would he would uh forward the email to Michael Mann, Michael Mann would reply back, and then he would forward and be like, Yeah, this seems legit. So the banks just did not do good due diligence on this stuff either. Right. But here's his payout. Here, here's the thing. Michael Mann paid him eleven thousand dollars worth of Amazon gift cards. That's how we, this this guy Helped commit thirteen million dollars of fraud,
1: and he only got and he
0: only got eleven thousand dollars in Amazon gift cards. Oh god, not not worth it. And now he's <laughs> and now he's going to go to prison. So and, and and Andy has to pay him back. He has to pay back eleven thousand three hundred dollars worth of gift cards back. Apparently,
1: did it say how long he's going to prison?
0: He hasn't been sentenced yet.
1: Okay, wow. Um, well, if he gets prison time, then and and it was just all he got was eleven thousand dollars of gift cards. That's uh, not not a good payout. <laughs> this story just,
0: well, there's going to be more people exposed. There's just too many entities. There's too many people involved. Um, it wasn't just Michael Mann sitting there in his room by himself orchestrating all this. Like, th- there's a lot more people going down. And I actually think your your hunch. Or last week you talked about the the president of the bank.
1: They just happened to be roommates or something in college. Would you say they were part of an MBA program together? So, it's this personal relationship thing, right? And maybe the, the bank manager or the VP that we were talking about, maybe he didn't mean to do anything wrong, but he trusted man because of that personal relationship.
0: Yeah.
1: And I, I'm not an expert on fraud, but it, just reading all these stories over the past few years about it, it seems like a lot of the time, the problem is people rely on personal relationships. They don't do their due diligence. You got to trust but verify.
0: And I think that's the last of my Valentine's Day stories.
1: Well, I've got a story about other folks not doing their job, and that is the IRS. Now, maybe we can give the IRS a break because they are seriously, seriously underfunded, but you would think they would do a little bit better than how they did when it came to managing the free file program, which is what I want to talk about. Obviously, we've been talking about this for months and months now. The IRS exercised very little oversight over the free file program, which is the program that allowed uh, low-income taxpayers to file their taxes for free. They outsourced the free file program to dozens of tax preparation companies, including TurboTax. Those companies then found ways to redirect people into paid products so that something like only 2% of folks who would have qualified for the free file program to do their taxes for free ended up paying to do their taxes, The inspector general of the United States came out with their official report earlier this month and formally said that the IRS did not exercise proper oversight, that the complexity, confusion, and lack of taxpayer awareness around the operational requirements of the free file program are contributing reasons why many eligible taxpayers don't participate in it. And they verified that only 2.5 million or 2.4% of the 104 million eligible taxpayers obtained a free return filing through the program. And more than 34.5 million taxpayers who met the free file program criteria used the members' commercial software to file their tax returns. So out of those third of people who qualified, who used commercial software to file their tax returns, somehow those companies managed to funnel those folks into paid software the vast majority of the time. The lack of oversight is pretty amazing. There's a lot of detail in this report about the complexity, but also about what the IRS didn't do when they were supposed to exercise oversight. Uh, Apparently, they failed to develop goals and performance metrics. They weren't really even measuring the program. So the IRS folks didn't even know that it was this bad. And they weren't verifying that people who qualified for the program were being properly put into the right funnel and and all this stuff. So uh, the IRS agreed with almost all the recommendations and is going to implement them. But uh, in more uplifting news... Did you know that the Rhode Island 1040 form has emojis on it this year?
0: Emojis on the 1040 form?
1: Yeah. The 2019 form RI 1040, it is line 15C and 16, total amount due and amount overpaid. So next to total amount due, there is a a frowny face. And next to amount overpaid, there is a smiley face. And I found this on a Reddit thread, on the tax Reddit. The comments are pretty funny. Somebody said, the first time I saw it, I thought our system accidentally printed it, but it is in fact real. Apparently, Arkansas's individual return has had them for years. Utah did it a few years ago on their online filing system, took it off after they got complaints, and then put it back on when they got even more complaints for taking them off. So
0: uh, Now we have show artwork, right? We can utilize that for our, our,
1: yeah, there you go. our Work
0: on the show. So those are all my tax stories. Do you want to talk about um, ransomware? Sure. All right. So there was an article in the New York Times kind of summarizing the, the year in review for ransomware in 2019. And the numbers are really uh, scary when you look at it versus 2018 or even Q4 of 2019 versus the previous quarter. In 2019, 205,000 organizations have uh, claimed that they've been hacked by a ransomware attack. 41% increase. Wow. And the average payment is now uh, 84000 And that was just for the Q4 of 2019. It's
1: double than it was in Q3 of 2019. Wow, well, this is quickly approaching the amount that people lose due to in-house fraud. And then they're saying the, in just December alone, it's jumped up to $190,000. is, I think. I think like 200000 is something like the... Uh, I, I could be wrong here, but around the amount that the average business loses due to fraud. So so that basically means ransomware, we should be equally on our attention. So, so think about that. Like if you put that on a graph, it's like a hockey stick. Yeah. So what happens
0: when people see numbers that look like hockey sticks? Businesses pop up, correct?
1: Right, of okay. course.
0: So um, what's happening now is hundreds of gangs are uh, starting to um, specialize and hackers are starting to specialize in creating ransomware as a service.
1: Hacker gangs, yes, yeah, so are creating s- ransomware as a service. As a service, so you—what does that mean? So
0: you and I could go buy a ransomware package, and maybe inside the
1: feed of the Cloud Accounting podcast, distribute it. Oh, so like create like a little uh, little side business. Exactly. So we don't ransomware. have to,
0: like I don't have time to code up ransomware. <laughs> I could just sign up for a service and get ransomware, and then <laughs> oh and God. then distribute it. And then not only that, because when people get ransom, you, know, you put the phone number, we get a call in, you and I do not have time to take phone calls from people saying, I want to pay the ransom. They're setting up call centers to handle the call volume. A complete industry, legit industry has been built around ransomware attacks.
1: Well, this is amazing. And I have a related stat. According to the Alliance Risk Barometer for 2020, 39% of respondents to its ninth annual survey of risk experts identified cyber incidents as their main concern, pushing business interruption events out of the top spot it had occupied for seven years. So cybersecurity, which includes ransomware, is now the top concern. 49% of risk experts say it's their top concern over business interruption events
0: to add on to this, right? Brian Sartin, he's the head of global security services at Verizon. They're, they're encouraging clients to create a slush fund of bitcoins
1: just to have in case you need it,
0: just to have in case you need it. And then, um, the article also talks about, uh, somebody who had a medical practice, a doctor, and she's her passion for 20 years. And then they, it totally, uh, became a mess. She got ransomware, et cetera, et cetera. She was shutting down her whole thing. But her forensic expert apparently told her that even if she paid the $50,000 to get her data back, there's only a 15% chance she'd actually get it back. So uh, stop clicking on links, guys. Sobering. I mean, the numbers just are staggering from the month
1: by month by month of the last quarter even. Well, and you were talking about the trend, right? That hockey stick kind of mm-hmm. growth. Same thing for this stat that I just mentioned. Seven years ago, cybersecurity Ranked fifteenth with just six percent of responses that it was the top concern. So it went from six percent to thirty-nine percent in just seven years. Wow, amazing!
0: So uh, it's still affecting uh, governments. Do you know Puerto Rico? They lost two point six million in a phishing scam.
1: Oh no! How does this work? uh,
0: They got contacted by an email that said change the bank account details to this, and they paid the bill to the wrong bank account details. Against. So, all of you probably, uh, to be honest, everybody listening should have a process with each client. Like, provide value to your clients, call them all up, and have some internal processes where you do not change the banking account information without either sign off or secondary verification. You can't just do it because you got an email.
1: Yeah. Email verification doesn't work. Email is not secure. Well, let's shift gears for a bit and talk about the Trump administration. It's election season. Uh, I got my ballot in the mail here in California, and uh, my mail-in ballot, Uh, but that's not what I want to talk about. What I really want to talk about is the White House budget. The Trump administration released a budget, and there's something in there that's really relevant to accounting. The White House wants to get rid of the PCAOB, the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, which has been around for 16 years, that was created after the fall of Enron to be the watchman, the auditor of the auditors. Yeah, the Trump administration wants to eliminate the PCAOB and transfer its authority back into the SEC, which is like the parent of the PCAOB.
0: So this is, true. how do you feel about this? Because I think before in previous episodes, you, I think you've railed against them for failing, being, being a failure at what they're supposed to be
1: doing. I love this. This is like the best thing that Trump has ever done. <laughs> <laughs> it's It's amazing because just two weeks ago, In Accounting Today, there was this great article called, Is the PCAOB Doing Enough? And the stats are just damning. Since the PCAOB opened its doors, it has levied less than one half of 1% of the fines that it could have imposed on the big four U.S. accounting firms based on its finding of defective audits. This amounts to a total of $6.5 million in fines. Rather than the 1.6 billion that were warranted, a minuscule fraction of what the PCAOB should have recovered from wrongdoers. It is also a minuscule fa- fraction of revenue of this sector, which reported more than 154 billion in global revenue in 2019 alone. I imagine that number doesn't even cover their budget line to justify their existence. I, I don't think so because they've collected. You said, "Can you repeat that?" Again, six million, three million. So. In 16 years, they have collected $6.5 million in fines.
0: Oh, I give get my calculator here. 16.
1: All right. Let's see. What's that a year? That's a couple, $200,000 a year. Uh, do do you, you do the math right now and I'm going to look up something else for us, which is, which is interesting. I'm going to look up the cost of the PCAOB. So I'm dividing 5 million by? You're d- dividing 6.5 million by 16 years.
0: Oh, it's earth shattering. Uh, $400,000 a year. <laughs> Okay, for a government department.
1: So, the the budget for 2020 for the PCAOB is 284.7 million dollars.
0: Oh, we have to kill this. Absolutely, <laughs> I, I, you, I, you got me convinced. This is the best thing Trump's ever done. I'm all I'm told.
1: <laughs> Isn't this amazing? So, so put, putting this these fines in perspective: 6.5 million dollars in fines for an industry that generates 154 billion in global revenue. It's like David, if you know, if I got a parking ticket and it was like five bucks, right? So it gets worse. I'll I'll, I'll share some of the stats from this um, article. And by the way, this article in Accounting Today, it's in the show notes, and it links to a report by the Project on Government Oversight, which is you know one of those groups that does government oversight. Thank God we have these. According to Pogo's report, since the PCAOB began its oversight functions in two thousand three. It has identified 808 instances, 808 instances in which big four firms performed audits that were, quote, so defective that the audit firm should not have vouched for a company's financial statements, internal controls, or both. But they only took enforcement action in 21 of those instances. 808 completely defective audits, 21 enforcement actions. Individual fines? The PCOB is no joke. They have the power to levy individual fines on... Accounting for management who failed to reasonably supervise lower level staff. So, the partners, they've imposed a total of $410,000 in fines in 16 years, which is less than one, you know, the salary of one big four partner. <laughs> wow. So, what a amazing. waste of money, right? What a giant freaking waste of money that the PCAOB is. And how could anyone justify keeping them around when this is their track record over 16 years? It's like, just shut it down. And this is just one little small piece of yeah. our government, right? Yeah. I, I'm sure this just goes deeper and deeper. No, but David, David, you should be worried. Numbers. I mean, this is going to make me vote for Trump, David. You're, you're gonna... <laughs> <laughs> This is I'm passionate about this. This well, is my you issue. Will, you know,
0: you, your, your other guy Yang dropped out.
1: Yeah, this Yang week. Yang dropped out, and you're you're you all over
0: the part of the Yang gang.
1: I know we've we've talked we've talked about Andrew Yang on the show, and I not that much. We don't talk about politics a ton, but yes, I I liked. I like Andrew Yang, and not necessarily because I agree 100% with his policies, but because I think he's drawing attention to the threat of automation and how that's going to fundamentally change our society. And he's actually talking about it and wants to do something about it.
0: Well, let's let, let, let's go off your uh, talking about automation spin. Okay. Skill factor. So we've talked about skill factor a lot in the past, right?
1: Yes. And I am not terribly familiar with them, but I understand they are one of those... Software companies with a service, or like you, you like to say, accounting firms with developers,
0: accounting firm with engineers. So they're they're very similar to Bookkeeper, Scalefactor, Ceteris, Bench, arguably QuickBooks Live, kind of In that de, model, right? Indenero, right? Indenero, right? Yep. That, that that same model. So they uh, had a blog post uh, this week come out about how the future of small business finance is more human than you think. More human than you think. It really sounds like they're
1: pivoting their business model. So, so so currently they do you buy scale factor and you get software plus a service and it's provided in-house.
0: Yep, it's similar to the QuickBooks Live model. They 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 use QuickBooks or zero under the covers, right? And you pay for them and you get like a Scale Factor app and a Scale Factor dashboard and you do all your interactions with Scale Factor and in-house they have accounts and bookkeepers. Got it. Doing your bookkeeping. It's 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 a it's a full-blown
1: service. And, and they raised a bunch of money last year, and we, that's how we ended up talking about them, right?
0: Yeah. So, of all these players, because uh, they've lo- they've raised the most, they've taken in a hundred million dollars. Okay. Got it. Uh, and I think when they announced they took in that last round, they didn't even have a thousand customers. And I think we we did some math before, and it was the ratios were not good, as far as like for the amount of money they've taken in versus how many actual customers they've acquired so far. So if you really read the article, it starts out a little very high about, um, I'm not saying arguing against technology, but tiptoeing in the waters that maybe it wasn't solving automating and creating bots and, and using technology. Maybe it wasn't solving problems as easily as they maybe thought it could. So I'll just read some quotes here.
1: <laughs> I know where um, this is going.
0: The time and cost savings that come from smart application of technology can be the lifeblood of a small business, but sometimes the answer is no. And then there's another uh, sentence about psychological support in the early years is a critical piece of business owner success that requires a different kind of innovation. Technology can still enable this solution, but it is not the whole solution. So it's a, it's a very interesting because I think a lot of these companies were betting on we'll just get engineers and automate the hell out of everything. Yeah. And the pe- like is the pendulum swinging a tad the other direction.
1: Well, I think they're just learning hard lessons, which once you do bookkeeping for a few years, you start to realize just how hard it is and how there is so much that you cannot automate. There's a lot you can automate, but there's a lot you can't and 100% bots and not going to work. Not even, I mean, maybe you can do half. I mean, it it just depends on the task, right? The the client-facing stuff, it's so difficult to automate.
0: And it sounds like they're uh, completely pivoting to where they're going to play more of a middleman, like a true Uber model. Like, so Uber does not have drivers in-house. Looks like they're going to pivot that way. And if you really lead the article a little bit deeper, there's a sentence that actually reinforces that. So they go on to say, we are also retaining a portion of our finance professionals to foster this new marketplace from the inside. In addition, we'll... pre be providing assistance for some team members to spin off and start their own independent businesses that's certified pros in our ecosystem. So it sounds like internal accounts and bookkeepers that they had in-house are now, for lack of a better term, being laid off to go become independent contractors for scale factor.
1: It makes total sense to me. This is the only way that you can scale a business is by being a platform, not by being a provider. And this is the problem, I think, that a lot of these software plus a service companies have is that they end up getting sucked into doing the service and that doesn't scale like software does you don't get the return on investment you don't get the huge margins you don't get the crazy exponential growth that you need to justify taking vc money
0: so so do you see thinking about bookkeepers in general right or let's step it back. You've done this. You've, you have order your Lyft and he shows up. He or she shows up. And there's an Uber sticker in the window, a Lyft sticker in the window, uh, an Amazon delivery app running because he's also doing Amazon package deliveries. Here she is. And then, yeah, so uh, all those food services, DoorDash and all that kind of stuff, right? It's all, you know, TashGrabbit. Like, th- he's got 50 50- stickers of all the services he he does he or she does gig work for, right? Is it going to be where bookkeepers are going to – they have their LinkedIn page and they're going to be like, hey, I'm a QuickBooks Live bookkeeper and I'm a Scale Factor bookkeeper and I do yeah, gig yeah. bookkeeping yeah. for this other one. Is that kind of the future you think we're headed?
1: Yes, unless states follow California's lead and pass laws like AB5, which pretty much makes it impossible to do that here in California. Scale Factor is not going to be able to hire California bookkeepers as contractors on their platform, I don't think. Because the test for independent contractor status is really hard now. And those laws were created specifically to target companies like Uber and Lyft.
0: But could Scale Factor take on California clients but have labor
1: in El Paso? Yeah, but what if Texas, you know, does the same thing? What if New York does the same thing? I mean if, if okay. you know most of the US population falls under these new laws that are getting uh passed, then no, I mean they'll have trouble. So so, we'll see.
0: Uh, I did reach out to Scale Factor. We'll put a link uh, on Twitter just to confirm whether or not they actually let off staff, um, which ties into our story from last week where over here on the QuickBooks side, it sounds like they can't hire staff fast enough.
1: Right. So which is why they're there, going to advertise. Uh, some freed
0: up labor now. The, the, the market's going to eventually balance all this out, right?
1: <laughs> we'll see. This
0: episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by SmartBooks Genie. SmartBooks Genie was born out of the struggles experienced by Calvin Wilder as he grew his firm, SmartBooks, from zero to 40 people in eight years. Calvin has been using Genie to run SmartBooks for the last 18 months, and now he's making Genie available to all accounting and bookkeeping firms to power their client accounting services. SmartBooks Genie layers on top of QuickBooks Online to allow you to centralize your firm's workflows, manage the monthly close, automatically prepare client reports, and complete time-consuming manual processes that you're currently doing in spreadsheets or other isolated systems. By centralizing client management to get core work done accurately and on time, Smartbooks Genie will stay on top of the deadlines and scope of service that you are delivering to clients so you keep your client engagements profitable. To learn more about Smartbooks Genie and take advantage of its early adopter program offering 50% off monthly subscription fees, head over to slash Genie. That is slash GENIE. Smartbooks Genie grants your wish for
1: a streamlined practice. we're talking about distributed workforces, people working virtually. I imagine that Scale Factor may have had bookkeepers, accountants in their office. And now those folks are going to work from home in a different relationship with the company. So let's talk about remote work and working from home. Yes. Uh, David, you sent over the latest buffer state of remote work report.
0: Ah, somebody tweeted that. And I said, that's that's Blake's beat. And I tagged you in the tweet.
1: Well, and you know I love. I remote. didn't
0: open it or read it, so I'm looking forward to you summarizing for us.
1: And and, and Bufford does a great job with this report. The link is in the show notes, and I encourage anyone anybody who's interested in seeing some good visuals on remote work to to go visit that. I'm a big fan. I have been working remotely since I started in accounting. Most recently, since October, because. Uh, where I work, Giraffe. We're a virtual company. We have a headquarters and a WeWork in San Francisco, but that is a optional workspace. People work from home. Often we have folks in Seattle, in Texas, LA, and we're going to grow that way. So let me just uh, share some of these interesting stats from the report, shall I? Yeah. This was a survey of folks who work remotely at least some of the time. And Mm -hmm. there is one unequivocal response, and this has happened every single year, when they ask folks, would you like to work remotely at least some of the time for the rest of your career? 98% say yes. So when people get- where are the 2%? They must have like- Well, they, they're not having a- Too much laundry to do or something like, I can't be in my house. It's just too much. There is a small percent that don't recommend remote work. 97% of people who work remotely recommend it to others. 3% don't. And we'll explore that 3% a little bit more as to why they don't recommend remote work. Because I think that offers some clues as to how we can make remote work better. Okay, Just to provide some context to folks, remote work has been growing really fast, but it's still very small in the US. Only 3% of US workers work remotely. Although if I believe, I don't have the data in front of me, but if you just look at uh, professionals or knowledge workers who work on a computer, it's probably all of that 3% is going to be in that group pretty much. Uh, so it makes it a bigger percentage uh, of, of you know, people who are listening to the show and whatnot. So uh, of people who um, work remote, over half, 57% work remote 100% of the time. And then about 16 to 17% work remote 75 to 99% of the time, 10% work remote 1% to 25%. Uh, smaller percentages work remote 50 to 75, 25 to 50. So basically more than half work remote full-time. Okay, and the rest are working remote some of the time. Uh, 70% are happy with the amount of time they work remotely, but 19% would like to work remotely more often. Only 11% would like to work remotely less often. And of the benefits, let's talk about the benefits of remote work. You might think that it's... uh the ability to spend time with family or work from home, but those are actually not at the top of the list. The number one reason people like working remotely is the ability to have a flexible schedule. That's almost a third of respondents. And then a quarter say it's the flexibility to work from anywhere. And 21% say not having to commute, which I th- think is my favorite. What's your biggest struggle with working remotely? It's split between...
0: Can I guess Can I guess some of
1: these? Yeah, go ahead. Just opening cabinets and just looking for a snack. Not <laughs> laundry. Not on the list. <laughs> and daytime soap operas. Uh, the, the, so, so twelve percent say distractions at home are the biggest struggle. Yep. But almost twice that. Twenty percent say collaboration communication. Twenty percent say loneliness, and eighteen percent say not being able to unplug. And then comes distractions at home. So, not being able to unplug is interesting because. That actually ties in with other stats we have heard from remote work surveys that say that remote workers are more productive as much as 20% more productive than office workers because their office is at home so they can work all the time and they end up working a lot more than if they went to an office.
0: Well, I think there's a a, a fine line of working remotely and working at home as well because I work from home and I'm like, I want to kill myself a lot of times because it's just, it's hard. There's a lot of distraction. But if I go to a Starbucks, I'm working remotely. Mm-hmm. and nobody bothers me. And yep. I and I get, get a lot done. It's, it's almost like I sit down and you really can get into the zone, but it's a lot harder to get in that zone sometimes at home when there's distractions. And
1: that is when I have my best days or when I will sit down early. I wake up and the first thing I do is grab coffee and I go sit in front of my computer where I'm sitting now in my office and I'll knock out a solid two to four hours of stuff. I really just need to get done without distractions. And then once you've done... A few hours of really what some people call flow work, you're exhausted. So I'll take a break. I'll go have lunch or brunch, get out of the house, and then I'll work at a Starbucks for a few hours. And then I'll come home and finish up. So changing that, that view really helps, I think. It also helps you feel less lonely. But the collaboration and communication part, that is a significant challenge. Although I would argue that it can be just as difficult in an office Depending on the size of your company, but you definitely—if you have remote workers—you need to have better processes than you. You can't rely on the ability just to walk over to somebody's desk and find out what's going on. You got to have you know more defined ways of communicating. So, where do you think, David? Since we're, we're you're making guesses, where do you think people primarily work from when they work remotely? Starbucks?
0: Oh, uh, oh, I, I, the physical place. I was going to say like at their. I, I think it's going to be at their house. It is probably the number one place. And then I would say. Probably on the couch. Even like, If, if people are being honest, I'm, I'm willing to bet and guess how many people do it on the couch
1: Well, while Netflix is on. couch is not listed here, but 80% of people who work remotely work from home primarily. 9% work at the company's office. So, I guess a different office than your team. And 7% work at co-working spaces. Only 3% work primarily from coffee shops, which, I mean, I totally get that's impossible to get. You can't work full-time from a coffee shop. Although (laughs) I think there's lots of people in my neighborhood who do because the Starbucks is always jammed. So... And and the other interesting thing is uh, even at companies when you're in the office, right? And I I remember having
0: this experience at Intuit. Intuit. You go to a meeting and the Intuit campus is gigantic and people just don't have the time to walk to the meeting. So they end up dialing in remotely. So, even though they're at the office, they're still attending meetings very remotely. It's pretty
1: funny, right? right? Yeah. So, we would,
0: like, so, so even people at the office are getting the remote experience.
1: Yeah. We would do the same thing. When I was at the firm down on Wilshire Boulevard, my team would be, there'd be a wall between me and my my team and we would all just dial in on Zoom because it was easier than trying to get everyone around a desk. We all had our stuff at our desks. So, <laughs> you know, it just makes so much sense. Um. So, some insights from the report, okay? So, the the big question is, you know, how do people overcome the challenges of remote work? And like, why do people not recommend remote work? What are the issues and how can we fix them? So the number one issue is when teams are split between offices and remote workers. And this is something you'll hear from a lot of folks who run remote companies is that if you're going to do it successfully, and if you want those remote workers to feel included, it's actually really important that you don't have... An office, or if you do have an office, that it's not required that people go there because you don't want your your company split into two groups where you have here's my group of people in the office who all have really great relationships and have that traditional office style of working together, and then here's the remote team which are like second class citizens and they don't get to know what's going on, they miss out on stuff. Those people feel really lonely. So if you're going to do remote, you need to really go all in on it. It's kind of like dropping timesheets. It's it's kind of like changing your process to pricing fixed fees or value based you can't can't really go halfway and make it work you got to do the whole switch over to be really successful
0: and buffer is a like a social media tool company are they 100% remote like
1: them as a company 100% remote yeah and so they're there uh, tax jar is 100% remote zapier um, is like zapier 100% remote. they're like big i, I want to say they're like 1000 people and they are 100% remote so guys you know if you think that remote work is just for small firms or small teams. It's not true. There are some big tech companies that have gone fully remote. And you know why they're going remote? Because San Francisco is unlivable now. (laughs) There was actually just a story on CNBC about Twitter's CEO, Jack Dorsey. He said that San Francisco is just unsustainable and that they're not planning to expand the Twitter offices in San Francisco anymore. They're going to go everywhere else. And they're going to have a distributed team. His other company, which is Square, uh, which everybody is familiar with from their point of sale. They uh, are not opening offices in San Francisco. They recently opened a new office in Oakland, so they're they're not going that far away from the Bay Area. But it's certainly a lot cheaper. And and we have this experience too at my company at Giraffe, San Francisco headquarters. But we're not going to expand there. No way. Too expensive. Even LA is cheap compared to San Francisco. <laughs> Even LA. Is yeah. Cheap. So does this get into uh, this sort of get into any uh, tools? Oh, uh, solutions. Well, uh, obviously, they recommend Buffer for using your social media. <laughs> okay, because <laughs> it's it's you know Buffer is the company that created this report. But I mean, you and I can talk tools, David. We you know we collaborate remotely. We use Slack. Well, we use Basecamp. I,
0: I, this is where I was heading with, with with Slack. Right? I've questioned it. You've questioned it. I've started talking to other people that are questioning it. It's almost like Slack's a little out of control. And the benefits you had from Slack before are starting to go away because it's starting to just feel like another big old inbox. And then if you're in multiple Slacks and you can't find things like... Oh, yeah. It's Slack like ripe for disruption from a different app, right? I I mean, I've started to, in my head, digest like what else could I be using?
1: Well, I saw a headline that IBM is signed up for Slack now. And I feel like that means that it's the beginning of the end. (laughs) Oh,
0: it's tipped. Okay. (laughs)
1: They're going to put like something like hundreds of thousands of people on Slack and yeah, I I think the problem with, it's certainly better than email and it's a solution we need, but it hasn't solved email. And that was what Slack aimed to do. They were like, we're going to replace email. And then they never did. It just became a, yet another communications channel we have to manage. So I think it's still there's still a solution out there. Hopefully somebody can figure that out. After years of using Slack, I think the big problem is when there's just way too much communication going on in Slack and people... Like you got to train people in your organization. When is the best time to use instant chat or team chat? And when is the best time to use email? Because you don't want to be distracting people constantly. This is one of the problems with remote work. If you have your chat app open, it's just as distracting as being in the office and having conversations happening around you all the time. We got to figure out how do we know when communication should be asynchronous, meaning I am not expected to reply immediately to it. Maybe I have a 24-hour period. And then you have communication that really is priority. And I would say that 80% of communication is not high priority or more.
0: And, and I'd argue that there's people I'm on Slack with that I've been communicating via text messages a lot more in the last four to eight weeks. And so something's obviously is shifted to where like it's almost like, hey, I want them to see this message or I need actually to, I really need to communicate with them. And Slack's just not good enough for that anymore. So I don't know, it's something to keep in mind and watch. I don't think we have to, to beat this up today.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, well, let's, let's, we'll keep talking about it. But yeah, that's my, because you brought it up, I got to say, that's my main complaint with Slack is that if I s- open a message on my phone, it's marked as red. If there's something I needed to do, it's not easy to keep that in an inbox or keep that in a queue. I, I have to star it and then remember to go to my start messages or I have to set a reminder. It's not good for actually tracking work that needs to get done. So...
0: Versus an inbox, it does sit in your inbox for the rest of your life. That's the thing about (laughs) an inbox that,
1: yes, the inbox may get full and cluttered, and then it's a pain to clear it. But at least you are assured that you're not going to lose a message that you read because it's there in that inbox.
0: Well, I think there's that feature of Slack. I think it's on by default where all the messages just go to your inbox and you can reply to them in your inbox. So you could actually just never actually go use Slack anymore, but just have all the messages run through your inbox. And you just oh, in my Slack email? inbox and your email, yeah.
1: Oh, then that's worse. <laughs> <laughs> that's the worst because you can't reply from your inbox. So then you got to go back to the app. It just, it makes things even worse. Anyway, uh, we're not going to solve the world's problems in that regard today.
0: No, um, I have a... Uh, Two small app updates that were kind of interesting, but then I I do want to talk a little bit about the UK. Uh, So I don't know what else you have on your plate.
1: There's just one thing I wanted to add to that remote work discussion. Oh, yes. Which is something that we don't often bring up. A lot of times we talk about work-life balance. We've talked about the talent shortage, how accounting firms, bookkeeping firms in particular, are going to have trouble attracting and retaining talent. And that's one reason that remote work uh, is important. It can help you attract folks who don't want to commute. And there was a stat recently in the Wall Street Journal, in an article called Smallest U.S. Firms Struggle to Find Workers, businesses with fewer than 20 employees, in 2019, their headcount was essentially unchanged. When you compare that to bigger companies, companies with 500 or more employees, they grew their workforces by 2.3% in January, and they grew their workforces in 2019. So the economy is good, businesses are expanding, but the small businesses have not been able to hire and aren't able to compete with the big companies that can offer big benefits. So remote work is a real option, a way that they can, the small businesses can compete. Also investing in software was mentioned in this article. The quote is some small companies are using software to drive efficiencies that keep headcount down and allow companies to remain competitive. North Carolina trailer sales Inc invested in new software that costs $15,000 a year to streamline bookkeeping and other administrative tasks. Unquote. Now they don't say what that software is. Sounds like an ERP. (laughs) Yeah. Sounds like an ERP system, right? So, you know, more companies are willing to spend on software. Outsourcing is also mentioned. Quote, other companies are taking advantage of a boom in service providers willing to handle functions such as human resources and marketing. Ultraco, a contract manufacturer in Thousand Oaks, California, outsourced accounting in 2019 and this year plans to shift logistics and the creation of artwork and presentations to third parties. Unquote. Software, outsourcing, outsourcing too is like a remote work kind of thing if you think about it, right? It's They're not your employees, they're contractors, but they're not in your office. Yep. Um, and one more thing I wanted to add, uh, this was an article in Forbes called Remote to the Rescue, How Virtual Jobs are Saving the World. It reminded me that there are benefits to the earth from remote work. Remote work saves 3.2 metric tons of carbon emissions and 313 gallons of gasoline per remote worker per year. So if you are a climate change advocate and you want to save the world, you can make your employees' lives better and you can reduce your carbon footprint by letting people work from home because they're not commuting. They're not polluting. Uh, and, and lastly, another benefit of remote work that isn't brought up a lot is uh, it's promotion of diversity and inclusion, because when you measure people based on results, the color of their skin or their gender is less important. And also when people aren't in an office all the time, that is not as visible. Or hygiene. So people's work. Or hygiene. (laughs) That's right. So you have to have systems to measure work product, which is hard, but yeah, it's it's better for top performers because they don't get judged based on superficial traits.
0: So I have two small quick app news. Uh, Cashew. Are you familiar with Cashew? K-S-H-O-O?
1: Uh, gesundheit.
0: So they're they're a cloud accounting software app. It's been around, I feel like it's been around like at least a decade. It's been a long time. They released um, some new tools. They've now added machine learning to categorize and uh, reconcile expenses. They're saying data entry is virtually eliminated. And then they're going to also do some... Um, OCR. So take a picture of receipt, upload it right in the app. So they're consolidating, you know, arguably things that were done by third party apps into their one app. I just like reading it. It's hard to tell like, that, like this is just kind of normal cloud accounting stuff other than the OCR that everybody else has been doing. So I don't know, like what, what was you doing before? Like I, I've never actually used it. I've just mm-hmm. known they've been around. I mean, I've always thought it's, it's, they had bank feeds and they pulled down transactions.
1: So Yeah. I think similar to Zero, QuickBooks Online, more for those, Micro businesses, though. I got some app updates, too. Okay. Square has released progress invoicing. So now you can send an invoice and set up milestones, and then you can progress invoice your clients. Wow. and Yeah, right? It's something <laughs> that people have been asking for forever in a lot of apps, and Square just does it. They just go and do it. Nothing stops them. Uh, and then Zero has a couple updates. Zero Expenses uh, has mileage. That's now in open beta. So you can track your mileage in that zero expenses app. And then you can now attach a file to a spend money transaction on your mobile device. This was something that was really requested when you're reconciling on the bank feed. You can now open up that transaction you create and you can snap a picture of a receipt and attach it. So it changes the workflow from having to submit the receipt first and then reconcile. Yep, Makes a lot of sense because... I don't save all my receipts. David, I know you're crazy and you save every receipt. So I just want to go in when I'm reconciling, take a picture of any of the bigger items like my hotel bill.
0: Well, one day when I hire, a, I outsource my bookkeeping work, I'm going to be an ideal client. There's going to be a lot of demand to take me on because I know <laughs> my stuff's nicely, nicely organized and I have good habits as a client. Except um, you'll
1: know how it should be done. So you'll complain when it's not done properly. <laughs> properly
0: this is taking too long. Um, so again, file this one under uh, banks becoming GLs. So, uh, joust, you know, like you know, joust the event on horses, like,
1: so or the uh, the famous uh, computer game.
0: Oh yes, exactly right. Uh, so they've launched a banking app for freelancers. They're actually part of a an invoice guaranteeing company called PayArmor. So I don't know if you've ever heard of that. No, never really heard of it. To, to help collect, it's it's invoice factoring, right? To collect unpaid invoices. So basically, this app is now it has a FDIC insured bank account combined with a merchant account, but it also does, you get your debit card, you get bill pay, you get savings and goals, you get a dashboard, you get client management, you get invoices and invoice factoring. It's your bank account, your bank app, but it's your full-blown, it's pretty close to a GL. Like this, we just keep seeing this every week. So did they start as a bank? I think they started as a invoice factoring company and then worked with a bank to spin up this Joust app.
1: Got it. And who's it for? Who's using this?
0: Small businesses, freelancers.
1: Freelancers, free, so. f- Yeah. Because, you yeah, know, you small, a small business, business is a big category, right? So, like, is it yeah, yeah solo folks? But it's just, it. it's
0: that same March we keep seeing every week. Yeah. Banks want to be GLs. GLs want to be banks.
1: For freelancers, I totally see this app, bank, plus accounting system, plus invoicing system being the winner among freelancers, for sure, because their needs are really simple and it's totally doable. They just need to categorize their expenses, send invoices, get paid, you know, manage their money. Somebody's going to get millions and millions of customers if they can lock this down.
0: And then combine it with probably some human piece, some human bookkeeping type level of support, some small add-on on on top of it.
1: You really may not even need to because this is the one thing that AI is really good at in ML, like you just said with Cashew, is categorizing transactions. That is... If you have a big enough database and you have enough people who are manually categorizing just some of them, a fraction of them, you can automatically categorize the rest. This is not complicated to look at a bank statement line and figure out what category it should go to, especially if you've got a standardized chart of accounts. That's the trick.
0: That that That's the key is yeah. standardized accounts across the board. Because I'll tell you what, Mint, like, I've, I've given up. I don't even correct transactions anymore. I just don't care. Like, like I, I know that it, it categorizes them based on kind of what the the crowd categorizes things on and it's just, it, it's always a hassle. It's
1: never right. So, so that's, that's the trick standardized chart of accounts. And then, and then I'll, you know, have some human verification, a little bit of it. Anyway, that's all I got this week. How about you, David? Oh, we didn't read our reviews.
0: Oh, we, we have to read reviews and then we can talk UK. What do you want okay. to do? Let's read, read the reviews and get back to our Valentine's theme. There's okay. There's a lot of love in there.
1: Yeah. Let's read some love notes. So... We got one here on Apple Podcasts. This is from CPA in YYC. I recently began researching starting my own accounting firm and listening to this podcast has helped affirm I am on the right track and has kept the imposter syndrome to a minimum. I particularly enjoyed the dive into what the heck is goodwill and how do we keep our designation relevant? That's from Ian Fallinsby CPA, CMA, and founder of MetaQuants, Inc. in Calgary, Canada. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks, Ian, for listening. And I'm glad you like this discussion. Sometimes I think when I talk about FASB and Goodwill and the PCAOB that <laughs> nobody actually cares about this stuff. It's good to know you do.
0: I, I usually go out and get it sit out the fridge and come back when you're going
1: off <laughs> on that. That's <laughs> David's snack time.
0: Uh, so I have an uh, interview – or interview, sorry. I have a review that was on Podchaser. This is five stars. It's from Mark R. Bruce. A big thank you to David and Blake for an amazing podcast. You're Absolutely making a difference in the world of cloud accounting and bookkeeping. I'm an Australian living in Asia, working with accountants and clients across the region to help them with their transformation journey. This podcast has become a very important source of...
1: And then it cuts off?
0: That might be the whole thing. He might have ran out of characters. I don't know.
1: Well, thank you, Mark. Last one is from Cliff Mitchell. Five stars on Podchaser as well. David and Blake are running the best podcast in cloud accounting. They have a deep understanding of the app and accounting landscape and are both entertaining personalities. They also like ClockShark, which is obviously the best time tracking app for cloud accounting. And thank you, Cliff, for listening and taking advantage of our offer to read your review on the air, even if it is obviously totally promotional. It's it's smart. You get, you get a free ad, write a review. Yeah,
0: actually, I think ClockShark's sponsoring <laughs> next week. So. Oh, they're, thank they're you, ClockShark. That's awesome. Ourselves. No,
1: and, and I've heard great things. So... Uh, last story, you were going to talk about the UK, right? Yeah, so
0: I don't know if you heard, FreshBooks is launching in the UK.
1: I had not heard that. Wow, that's a big so, so deal. They, oh, I knew they were going international, yes, so, so they, but I didn't know where. Yeah,
0: so they work in the UK. They, they work globally, right? But they've actually added um, functionality to support making tax digital, which is the big push in the UK. And if you like, step back and you think about um, Intuit's claim, they're beating zero in the UK now. So FreshBooks in the UK. That's fine. That's one of the articles. All right. So then there's a related article that was published from in the Australian Financial Review about how an accounting software minnow says it can prosper in zero shadow. And
1: this a is a minnow
0: minnow. So if you've if you've really been following any of the news lately, Receipt Bank, they took that huge round and they've been on the press tour. Receipt Bank's founder has been on the press tour, you know. Um, mm-hmm. You know, spouting the uh, the virtues, and this article is interesting because it touches a little on that concept of what happens when an app, so Zero bought Hubdoc, right? When there's other players in that space, you know, and everybody has Zero into it. That everybody wants to be an open ecosystem. But if you really read this article deeper, it it goes a layer beyond this. Like, oh, it's all fair and it's okay. There's a quote uh, from Steve Almos. So he's the Zero's global CEO. And he talks about how HubDoc and the automation of ingesting documents and data is core to the vision they have at code-free accounting. In Australia and New Zealand, they built it. But in the UK, they did not have time to build it. So they just wanted uh, they didn't want they just wanted to get something in market. And that's where buying HubDoc came in because they they mm. want to win the UK and make progress there. And then on the other side, the Receipt Bank, their quote, in Britain, most British accountants and their small business clients in that country still use desktop software. But Mr. Blair said the trend is firming towards greater reliance on real-time data. So the line in the sand starting to, like for the UK, it's like as a battleground, is getting kind of declared. So the, the line is? It's not really a line in the sand then. Like the stake in the ground. Zero purposely picked up HubDoc to go after the UK market. Receipt Bank is in the UK market, and then if you tag this on to another article from Receipt Bank. So remember, we covered about Receipt Bank. I think they they have their own credit card,
1: right? Uh, not here though in the US, just in the, UK, in the UK. Yeah.
0: So so Receipt Bank, you know, in in the UK, has two products. They have a like a well, they have a credit card product which they are now killing, but they also have I don't know if you knew this or not, like a kind of like a QuickBooks self-employed product, like a small version mm, of a GL didn't know that. type full-blown product. So it's like a standalone product. Yeah. So this article, they talk about how they're killing their UK product, but if you read it, it actually hints towards them doing two other things. So I'll read that part of the quote here. So this is a Receipt Bank Director of User Adoption, Ben Martin. Martin stipulated that it does not mean they're pulling back in all terms of payments and hinted that there may soon be news from Receipt Bank on that front. So they're killing the credit card over here on their left hand, but they might be doing something more payments wise on the right hand. And then they also, in this article, have talked about how they're involved in the uh, bank feeds. So they're going to be adding bank feeds to Receipt Bank as part of the open banking initiatives in the UK.
1: Mm. They're going to go head to head with Zero. And that's what this, this is the, the, sounds like. This
0: is what it feels like. like they, I think they have to, to Zero survive. Intuit, Sage, Fresh Books. Like the next battle we're going to be following for the next six to eight months is the UK.
1: Well, if they're going to do that, they got to rebrand. <laughs> Because it can't be about receipts and banks. (laughs) I always wondered then about Receipt Bank. Why is it called that? It makes sense. You bank your receipts with them, right? Put in all your receipts. But they do so much more now. They do expense reports. They do – if they're going to do GL, then they they need need a new name.
0: Well, unless you plan on becoming a bank and get a bank charter.
1: (laughs) <laughs> right? Right. Like oh, yeah. They might be a step ahead. Yeah. Right? So maybe so, but you're right. Maybe <laughs> this was all planned from the beginning. And,
0: and that's right. you start you take these three articles together and you start piecing it together. It's like, "Oh yeah, everybody's lining themselves up for this battle in the UK. The lines are being drawn."
1: Well, maybe we can get ourselves out there. We are going to some events this year. Is there anything that we can share with our listeners?
0: Uh, we are going to be
1: uh, attending BQE Succeed. That is the second week of June. You can learn more at bqe We're going to be doing a keynote.
0: We got to write that. Get that done.
1: Yeah, we got to we got to get that up on the schedule, and
0: we'll have more. That's we all, have all we've got. got. Yeah, we have to get
1: uh, the. Yeah, that's all we've got on the schedule right now. Um, if you want to reach me or David and complain, or send us an article, or just say hi, you can connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter at Blake T Oliver. When you do connect with me on LinkedIn, please say that you're a podcast listener. That helps me figure out who's real and who's a bot. <laughs> uh, you can also email me at Blake at BlakeOliver.com. How about you, David? Twitter's probably the best and easiest, at David Leary. But also, uh,
0: a lot of people have been using LinkedIn because I think they uh, are just on LinkedIn and not on Twitter. So, I'm totally open
1: to that as well. Well, David, happy Valentine's Day again. And until next week, and, and see you hugs later.
0: hugs to all our uh, our listeners. Happy Valentine's Day to all of you. Time for the classifieds. High Rock Accounting is searching for rock stars. We are a growing accounting firm looking to increase our team. Our ideal candidate will be self-motivated, eager to learn, and grow with the firm. We help businesses succeed by utilizing cutting-edge technology to provide accounting solutions that increase business efficiency and competitiveness. Our goal is simple, enhance accounting operations, improve accuracy, and reduce costs. As a High Rock star, you'll be responsible for full-cycle accounting in a cloud environment. Email careers at highrock.co. That's careers at highrock.co. One of the biggest hurdles accounting firms face is finding training that is current and relevant. There is an answer, Elephant Training. Elephant offers webinars and training on Xero, QuickBooks, and cloud-based apps and modern practice management issues like remote leadership and creative compensation. Their instructors are firm owners who also happen to be international experts in cloud accounting. This year, Elephant is offering recordings of their most popular webinars plus valuable resources in their brand new learning library. You can use code CAP20 for 20% off your subscription. Bulk licenses for firms are also available. Visit elephanttraining.com for more info. That's elephanttraining.com. Are you looking for more great cloud accounting content? Ryan Lozanis started and sold his old cloud accounting firm in just five years. Now he helps firms stay on the cutting edge through his free weekly email, curating the top five pieces of content that help modernize your firm. Visit futurefirm.co slash cloud accounting to sign up. That is futurefirm.co slash cloudaccounting. Accountants and bookkeepers, are you itching to make a career pivot and escape the nine-to-five grind in the busy season stress and start to build your own career path where you work virtually on your own terms? Then you need to get your copy of the newly released Bookkeeping Side Hustle Guidebook and learn actionable steps to become a virtual bookkeeper without the overwhelm. Cloud Accounting Podcast listeners can get the ebook for 30% off with the code CAP30OFF. Get your copy at bookkeepingsidehustle.com forward slash bookkeeping-guidebook. Want to get the word out about your newsletter, webinar, party, Facebook group, podcast, job hosting, or that fancy Excel macro you just created? Why not let the listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast know by running a classified ad? Hit the show notes for the link to get more info.